is the official hotspot for all things Cornerstone College of Virginia. Each episode will explore controversies, philosophies, and modern-day Christianity through the individual lenses of several Bible college students. It is our hope that these informal discussions will infuse your day with amusement, provoke your mind toward deeper thought, and spread the knowledge of Christ. Hello, and welcome back to The Roar. I'm Sam Rhodes, and today we will be interviewing Ben Davis. He's going to be giving us an in-depth overview of the gospel today. Uh, ben, what do you have for us today? Hey, um, so I'm going to be going a little bit more in-depth into the gospel. I know we did an introduction uh, episode. It was a few minutes long going into the gospel, but though the gospel is simple, it is very deep, and there's a lot to it, and it can be understood easily, but there's there's a lot to mine out in this. So, for instance, Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters long. Um, Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. So the the writers of the Bible spent a lot of time mining out what is this that we call the gospel. One of the best places to start is in Acts 17. So a little bit of context. Paul preaches to Gentiles who uh, basically we could say today they're unchurched. They don't know anything. And so in Acts 17, Paul is giving a gospel proclamation to people, these unchurched people, and this is what he says. Paul stood in the midst of the Ergopius and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, you worship in ignorance. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, gives to all people life and breath in all things. He has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, and even, as some of your poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold, silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness." through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So that's Acts 17, 22 through 31. And this is a key passage, I think, for talking about the gospel, because as I said, it's Paul preaching the gospel to people who really didn't have any context. And there's a few things that he points out, one of which is that Jesus stands in contrast to the idols of the world, and that there's a difference between Jesus and the gods of men. And the main point, which he emphasizes, and he comes to at the end of this sermon, is that God has proven that he's going to resurrect the dead 
and he's going to judge each person according to their life by this man, Jesus. And the proof of this is that God raised Jesus from the dead. So what's going on is that in the gospel message, Jesus proclaims that he will judge all of the earth according to their life, and the way you come to him is by living a life of faith. Now, there's this thing called two ages. So all of history is really the age before Jesus comes and the age after he comes. In history, we divide ages up into multiple segments. Usually you've got the Bronze Age, Age of Iron, the Medieval Age. But in the biblical world, um, specifically the apostles' minds, there's only two ages. There's the age that's now and the age that's coming. And it's radically defined by when Jesus comes back. So when Jesus comes back, it sets in the age to come, which is eternity, and he begins the restoration of the earth. So the way that we are to live as a disciple of Jesus is in context of the age to come. So what that means is everything that we do in this life is lived for the next age. And that's what faith is. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, things not yet seen. So they're things that are not yet seen or experienced, but they're things that are coming and hoped for. And we have assurance of this hope and positive proof of this hope by, as Paul would say, by the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus's resurrection is what's called first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected. And that shows us that we will be resurrected. So sometimes um, in popular media, there's this idea of when we die, we go to heaven and it's all about eternity with God in heaven. And sometimes that's um, not quite accurate of what the apostles had in mind, because the, the apostolic hope is not um, for us to live disembodied. So what I mean is this, when people think of heaven, sometimes they think of a place that's unphysical, it's spiritual, whatever they may mean by that, and it's ethereal. There's no substantive reality. But what the apostles are teaching is that in the age to come, it's very physical, and it's a resurrected and restored hope. So here's what I mean, is that um, heaven and earth are going to be joined, and the resurrection of the dead is when Jesus comes back, he, he brings everyone back to life, and he, he judges people according to their faith how they lived in this age. And that sets in the motion the age to come, which is an age of restoration. So the idea of us being just eternal spirits without a body and living with God is actually um, a Hellenistic idea, which isn't, which is actually foreign to the New Testament. It's not the foreign test. The New Testament doesn't teach an idea of us living without bodies for eternity. It teaches us actually living in a resurrected state like Jesus. So when Jesus comes back to the apostles, there's one point where they say, are you a ghost? And Jesus says, no, I can eat. Do you have food? Do you have water? Touch me and feel. So the disciples were terrified of the idea of Jesus being a ghost. And Jesus denies that reality and says, no, I'm a real human and I have a body. And so Jesus as the first fruits 
that is what we will become like when we're resurrected. We will become like him in glory, not like him in the sense of um, divinity, but in the sense of having shared in his resurrection. For as he's resurrected, so will we be. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, This passage talks about this. In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. For since by a man came death, a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he will put all things in subjection under his feet. And then jumping down to verse 35, But someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body, just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is some flesh of mankind, another flesh of animal, another of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For the star differs in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. This is talking about when Paul says um, these different kinds of flesh. He's just saying that in this age, we have physical bodies. In the next age, we have physical bodies as well. And we get to live with Christ on this earth again. And that's a, a key concept because in this passage, Paul's addressing this idea that we actually won't be raised. In verse 12, he says, Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he goes on to say, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even not Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. So if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, and there's no resurrection from the dead, then our faith is void. It's, it's without merit. So this is one of the key aspects to the apostolic gospel. So now the question, when Jesus comes back, what, what is he going to do? What's going to happen in this age to come? When Jesus comes back, he's going to rule the earth, and he's going to make his enemies his footstool, and we are going to reign with him in the age to come. So in 2 Samuel 7, there's a prophecy given to Daniel, or sorry, David, that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne. And on on the throne of David in the kingdom of Israel. And this prophecy is then echoed again in Luke and told by Gabriel to Mary that her son, Mary's son, will rule on the throne of David. And this is the story of Jesus. And so when Jesus then dies on the cross and then is resurrected, that guarantees that hope that when he comes back, he's going to sit on the throne of David and rule the earth. And that throne of David is in 
Jerusalem, specifically on Mount Zion, and he's going to sit and rule from Israel all the other nations. And so the culmination of the gospel is in Jesus ruling all of the nations from the nation Israel, where he will teach all peoples his ways in a fuller sense, where this age is the age where Paul would say that we see dimly, um, as, in a gl- as in a glass mirror, we see dimly, but then we shall see perfectly. And so this coming age is where we will see Jesus face to face as he stands on this earth, and we will be with him, and we'll be like him and transformed into his image. So the gospel is a story that if, we're, if we were to draw a timeline, we're actually in the middle of it. We can look to the past and see Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is meant to be an assurance and a guarantee of the things to come, which is looking towards to the future in this, this timeline where he's going to come back and renew all things, and we will all stand before the judgment of God. So um, if we were to frame the gospel on a timeline all of this life is lived in expectation of the life to come because we have a hope of a resurrection. The culmination being Jesus ruling the earth. And this is the message that the earliest apostles preached, and it can be seen all throughout, all throughout the Bible. It starts and it builds through the Genesis narrative, and then it builds through these covenants that are given to the people of Israel, and then we see these covenants being guaranteed and God showing his faithfulness so that now we can actually look back in history and have assurance of what's coming, this future expectation. Uh, It's been said that eschatology or the study of end times, the things to come, is what drives discipleship. So just like a, uh, a deadline for an exam makes you and motivates you to study for the exam, it's the same with the biblical teaching of eschatology. It's our, essentially, divine deadline where the the age of mercy and grace, which we're living in now, comes to an end and the age of justice comes, where Jesus comes to bring forth justice. There is an obsession among young people against uh, with justice. We're all longing for this justice, and the Bible teaches us that when Jesus comes back and he returns to the earth, it says his recompense is with him meaning his justice and his judgment. You can't have the the justice of God without his judgment. Um, Just as there's no justice in a court system without a judge, you need a judge to have justice. So Jesus comes back to rule the earth, and that's where his righteousness and justice is established. And the, the surrounding of these events can be seen all throughout the Old and New Testament proclaiming a message of Jesus coming and us living in anticipation of that day. One more verse I want to hit is Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the end referring to when Jesus returns and the gospel of the kingdom referring to the gospel that I've just mentioned which is of Jesus coming to rule the earth and to rule over his kingdom, Israel, 
and all nations becoming in subjection to that. It's framed within context of eternity is the apostles lived with an expectation of the age to come. That's why they were able to give their lives to this message is because they knew it wasn't going to be just about now. So for instance, let's contrast it this way. The American dream of wanting to be successful and you have Jesus, you love him, but you also want your nice house. You also want um, different pleasures and comforts and these other things that may even be good things, but it's living for this age. And that's the key difference. Is it for this age or the age to come? And here's the part where faith comes in is because if you really believe there's an age to come and you have faith for that, then you can actually live this age with suffering and with expectation. So for instance, just like if I tell a kid, I'm going to give you a massive candy bar, you just need to sit quietly for 10 seconds. It's really hard to get a kid even for 10 seconds to be quiet, but if you show them the candy bar and you tell them about the candy bar, they can then do that because they know what's coming. But if they don't have that, and if, if, if you just tell them, oh, I'll give you a treat, something really good, if it's not clear, then there's no motivation. Clarity actually helps bring motivation, and it brings not just motivation, but it brings confidence in, in the message. Um, because if I have confidence in the hope, then I can give and sacrifice enormously. So when there's this vagueness and ill-defined vision of the future, no one wants to really live for that. It's like, if you can't give a clear vision to anything in life, it's probably going to fail. So why is it that we think if there's no clear vision for the age to come, we can live with success for the age to come? It's, it, it doesn't make sense. Clarity brings confidence in the, in the age to come. Ben, you mentioned Israel as an important aspect of the gospel message. Uh, why does Israel matter? So the reason why Israel matters in the gospel presentation, and it's not just, oh, this is some small secondary issue that's really not important. Let's throw it into the weeds of theology when we're preaching the gospel because we really want to center on the gospel. I don't think that's really possible because if you look at the Bible, so much of it is about Israel that if you really try to throw Israel out, you throw out most of the Bible, in fact. So that's just one problem. But the other one is that Jesus was born a human, which means that he was born to a certain people. And that people is Israel, who he promised. So when Jesus comes back, as I mentioned before, what, what will he be doing? He's coming back to his people, and he's made promises specifically to those people. And so any gospel that's preached that doesn't culminate and end with a Jewish man ruling the world is not a gospel that's, that's complete. The, go the gospel actually ends with Jesus, who's fully Jewish, ruling and reigning the world, in the land of Israel. And so there's many prophecies, a lot through Isaiah, 
uh, Jeremiah 30, for instance, Amos 9, that talk about Israel being restored. And we can even see that in our day. But being restored gloriously and with God ruling in the midst of Israel and thus and then spreading out to the whole world. But if you cut Israel out of that, you've you've cut a section of the gospel out because Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Gentile referring to anyone who's not Jewish. And again, why does that matter? It matters because simply if we want to know God, we want to choose to love his ways and his choices and what he's done in history. And he's chosen to pick a certain people of the world, and he picks those people to be a light of the world. And that's uh, Matthew 5, um, speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world um, to his Jewish audience. And that's just echoing the prophecies in Isaiah, where he says, they're going to be my people who will teach the nations in my ways. So he gives them the scriptures and they're stewards of that. And thus every one of us who believes the Bible is actually living and being totally blessed by the faithfulness of the Jewish people, because without them, no scripture, we don't know a thing about God. So all of us have been taught by the Jewish people and their faithfulness to God, Paul, Jesus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. And so without them, if we cut them off, we, we cut off the branch that we're sitting on. And so it's really important because it's not just the history of who God is revealing himself in the world, but it's also the future. So if you cut that off, you cut off the history and the future, and you're left with, without a sense of hope, if you will. And that is just why it's so important. Also because in, in the days coming, the Bible foretells of nations being gathered against Israel and God, Jesus actually coming and judging those nations. We can even see that Matthew uh, and Jesus' sermon, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, where he says, those of you who have treated the least of these, my brethren, referring to the Jewish people, you've done it to them, you've done it to me. And so if, um, that's a, a representation of our heart of God is, is his specific choosing of a people group. And it's, it's very offensive, but we can't remove the offense of the gospel. Uh, it's written that there's going to be a stumbling block and, an, and a rock of, of an offense. That rock and a stumbling block is not just an offense towards the Jewish people because Jesus is the divine Messiah. It's, it's a, a rock and a stumbling. It's an offense to the whole world because God offends the heart of men in hopes that in that offense we can actually give that to God and repent of our sins and turn towards him. So it's it's not just him trying to poke at us to be mean, but actually trying to reveal the condition of our heart so that we can turn to him in repentance. And that's a little bit more on the gospel message. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of The Roar. Feel free to sign up for our bi-weekly podcast newsletter found in the description and check out our website at cornerstonecollegeva.org.